0: Today on The Vergecast, Dan Seifert joins us to get into the M2 MacBook Air review. Liz Lobato comes on to do This Week in Elon. And of course, we'll get into all the goodies from the iOS 16 public beta. That's all coming up right after this.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Hello and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the Delaware Court of Chancery. <laughs> That's good. That's good. They ne- they've needed one. It's about time. I volunteered. I said, you know, I, I went and said, Mr. Chancery, Your Honor, what you need is a content strategy, and I've got a ready-made podcast. And uh, the judge was very willing. Anyway, I'm your friend Eli. Hello, welcome to Vergecast. David Pierce is here.
3: Hi, uh, I'm I'm your friend who will always accompany you to court just to make sure you're feeling
2: okay. <laughs> It's just like I brought snacks. Yeah. Alex Kranz is here.
4: I am friend of a friend of the content strategist for the Delaware Court of Chancery, apparently. (laughs)
2: That's why you you need the hookup. You can't just be cold emailing people. He said very pointedly to the people who cold emailed him (laughs) all day long about content strategy. Are you interested in making your blog bigger? Yeah, I am. But you're not going to help. Anyway, Dan Seifert is here. I am here. I am interested in making our blog bigger. Well, do, I have <laughs> e- do I have wacky cold emails for you, my friend? <laughs> All a day long. There's a lot going on this week. We, we really need to get into it. There's uh, Dan's here because we have our uh, MacBook Air M2 reviews, which I would not say are surprising, but they were shocking. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> they contained no surprises, and yet I was shocked. Not like electrically, but like emotionally. I'm glad that uh, one of our product reviews... Just elicited that emotion in you. Uh, and then Liz Lapato is going to join us. We got to talk about Elon and Twitter and the Delaware Court of Chancery. It's we don't have a choice, but we're going to do that in a, in a fun and exciting, interactive way.
3: The goal is just to not be angry for a long time. So we're, we're going to be angry for a short time, a bunch <laughs> of times rather than yeah. one long angry, if that makes yeah. sense.
4: Micro anger. Micro
2: micro anger bursts. Uh, And then all the betas came out and David, I don't know if this is going to be a micro anger burst, but we got to talk about stage manager. So there's quite a bit going on today on this Vergecast. I'm going to be mad at the end of this episode. No, you're going to let it all out. Oh, okay. This will be good. This is like the catharsis
3: of of all this. Okay. I like it.
2: Yeah. It's it's managing your anger at stage manager. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what you do. You put your anger in a pile off to the side. (laughs) Next to other piles. (laughs) Next to other emotional piles. And you just shove it down until it comes out later. This has been my strategy my whole life. Actually, David, we had a really big Wednesday episode. You want to tell us what happened there so people have missed it, they can go listen to it?
3: Yeah, it was super fun. So we talked about the James Webb Space Telescope, which is like objectively the coolest thing that has happened in a very long time. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first images from it came out this week. I understand almost none of it, and they're still unbelievable. They are, in fact, my computer background, me and everyone else on planet Earth. We also talked about uh, cable TV. We uh, I spent some time with one of the guys who runs YouTube TV, and we talked about like what is coming for the future of live TV, which turns out to be very complicated. And then the really fun thing is we created a Vergecast hotline, which has turned out to be deeply hilarious and very fun, and almost no one has intentionally trolled us yet. Um, I assume that will change, but it's, I'm very grateful so far. You got to be like, stop trolling us. Yeah, we're, we're not giving Alex the number on purpose. Alex is not allowed to call.
4: <laughs> I'm practicing all my voices.
3: But it's a thing we're going to try to do like once a month on the show. Just basically like take a bunch of people's questions either on a subject or about whatever's on people's minds. And we're also stealing a bunch of people's really good questions and ideas to just do as whole Episodes and segments of the verge cast So it's been super fun. The number is eight six six VERGE one one, and I believe the hotline is still open. So call and ask all your questions. We're going to get to them.
4: You got to say it again, though. that's that's how you do these. That's eight six six VERGE one one. That's one of my voices.
2: That's you're you're gonna just do morning <laughs> radio announcer voice. <laughs> As my question, like, you don't call a radio show and do radio voice. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> that's the Wednesday show, which is going great. By the way, the best thing about the James Webb Space Telescope, we, we're going to, Mary Beth Griggs is going to have a story about this on the site soon. If you look at these photos, they've got big lens flare in them, and that's the stars that are closest to us. But that lens flare look, those are called dis- diffraction spikes. And that is like the signature look of the telescope because of how the mirror works. And so we've got a whole story on like, lens flare. I'm so glad it has a signature look.
3: Like it feels yeah, like it, right? it deserves to have like a vibe.
2: I just love that. The signature look is like JJ Abrams. <laughs>
5: <laughs> they just stuck a starburst filter on the front
2: of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
5: And it's like a 1988
2: wedding. <laughs> if it shot video, it would definitely transition with star wipes. Like that's the James <laughs> telescope. It's great. It's amazing. It's very cool. Uh, there was one great tweet, which was like, I feel bad for Hubble, which is now the before photo of everything. Whoops. Sorry. Yeah, it did its best. It had a good run. But go listen to it, because the, the telescope is amazing. All right, let's talk about this MacBook. Dan, you reviewed it. Monica was out of commission this week, so Dan stepped in heroically to review the M2 MacBook Air. Here's what I mean when I say it was shocking to me. So the M1s came out, and we had the M1 Air in the old chassis and the M1 MacBook Pro in the old chassis. And the sort of what we discovered in the review, uh, processors are great, the big Intel-to-arm Uh, Transition was a massive success for Apple. Battery life skyrocketed. And we were kind of like the end of it. We were like, the only difference between these two computers really is one has a fan and a touch bar. But one has a fan. And that means if you have these really long sustained workloads, it can keep the performance high. Because it can move air over the processor and cool it down. It was like really sustained workloads. Yes. It took a lot to get the M1 Air to throttle. The M2... Same situation, only we've got a new case for the Air, which Apple was very loud about. David, I remember this. They were like, we designed the processor and the computer at the same time. Yeah, oh yeah. These things were made for each other. So you've got this new case, not a new chip in an old case designed for an Intel processor, but a new case. And Dan, it seems like the Air, the M2 gets really hot and hits its ceiling pretty fast in the Air in a way that it doesn't in the Pro, which has the old case with a fan in touch bar?
5: Yes, so part of this new case does not have a fan, like you mentioned. It's also thinner. So it's a thinner, slimmer case than before. It's sleeker. It looks like the MacBook Pro 14 or 16 in terms of design language. It looks modern and new and part of the current lineup of Apple MacBooks as you'd probably envision them and not like the MacBook Pro M2, which looks like the lineup from 2016. (laughs) But it is, as part of that, it is thinner than the MacBook Pro and it doesn't have a fan. So there are definite thermal constraints with this design. And we did a bunch of tests on it. I ran a bunch of benchmarks. I did a bunch of real world testing. And the M2 is faster than the M1 in almost every benchmark. A little bit faster, like on the order of like 10% or so. But compare it to the M2 MacBook Pro, you can easily see it's slowing down, especially with longer workloads. And we're talking like 10 minutes or longer benchmarks. So things like running a Cinebench benchmark will show it. Doing a long export on a video edit uh, will show it because it takes quite a few minutes to do that. The system will slow down the processor. It will reduce the amount of power it's sending to the processor. There's a a utility within macOS called Power Metrics where you can watch it and shows how much wattage is sent to the, the processor as it's doing something. And you can see it starting out at like... 25 watts and ramping it down to nine watts as it's doing a test and we did the same exact thing with the m2 macbook pro and it just kind of holds it at 25 watts or 21 watts or whatever it is whereas the air is ramping it down it's slowing down the clock speed and it's getting noticeably warm on the bottom as it's doing these longer tests so the difference is yes it's faster than the m1 but it hits this thermal ceiling more aggressively i guess like it, it the m1 was really hard to get it to get hot.
2: Like it just never got hot. When we did the M1 MacBook Air and MacBook Pro reviews way back when, it was like 30 minutes of sustained workload yes. before it started to hit that ceiling and throttle in the air compared to the Pro, which is why yeah. the like, it's a air with a fan, like it made a lot of sense to me in that context. Now you're saying 10 minutes, which just seems like a lot less.
5: Yeah, it, and it's, it's hitting that thermal limit earlier And it's hotter. That all said, even hitting that thermal limit and being hotter, it's still completed tests faster than the M1. Yeah. So like, even though it's thermally limited and it has lower headroom than you'd probably want out of the chip, it's still faster than the old one. So like, it's not like there is a time, you know, when I think it was the MacBook Pro 15 inch with the Intel chips where it was actually slower than the prior generation because the new chassis was so thin, it didn't have... Uh, enough cooling, enough headroom, and even with the newer Intel chips, it was doing things slower than the old computer. That's not happening here. It is faster than the M1. It's just not hugely faster than the M1, and it is not the same. What we saw going from Intel to the M1 was a massive leap, Super huge leap in performance, huge leap in battery life, huge leap in quality of life in terms of like it's quieter, it's cooler, it starts up faster. You don't have to like shut it down. You just close the lid, walk away, whatever. Uh, Those advancements happened and they all are included with the M2, of course. But going from the M1 and the M2 doesn't have that huge generational leap. Uh, or multi-generational leap, whatever you want to phrase it, that we saw going from the Intel to the M1. So it's less of impressive of a jump. It's a little bit better. It's kind of like on order of what we would expect an ARM processor generation improvement to do. But it's not like the, holy crap, this is blowing us away. Partly because... The M1 Air is so good, and it was so good two years ago, and it's still so good. It's still, like, a tremendously capable computer.
4: This is, like, kind of, I mean, we were talking, you know, Monica reviewed that that M2 MacBook Pro, and we were all like, why does it exist? Well, now we know why it exists.
5: Yeah, I still don't think it should exist. <laughs> Monica and I actually differ on, on this, and I think she's going to put her feelings on the site real soon. I think that if you are hitting the limits of the M2 chip, If the M2 Air is not powerful enough for you, the M2 Pro is not going to be enough powerful enough for you either. Like, yes, it is a little bit more powerful, but if you are hitting the limits of this, you should really be looking at a 14-inch or 16-inch MacBook Pro with an M1 Pro or maybe an M1 Max, depending on your workload. Like, that's where you need to be going. The difference between these two in terms of performance is not that huge. Yes, the M2 Pro is faster.
2: M2 MacBook Pro. Yeah, I'm sorry. The names are not great. The names
5: are really not great. I actually had to update our review this morning because there was a lot of readers who were like, what's the M2 Pro? That shit doesn't exist. (laughs) And I wasn't clear enough in the copy. So I had to go put MacBook in a bunch of times to uh, correct it. So thank you, Apple, for that.
2: They've only got six words and they're just going to keep recycling them. And one of those words happens to be my daughter's name, which I would love it if they would just fix that problem. That'd be great. Yeah, they're not going to. I'm going to name the next one Ultra. It's just to see what I can do.
4: The next child? Yeah.
2: Ultra Patel. I love that. Ultra Patel is very good. Yeah. That's a good name. Actually, here's my question about that. Whether the 13-inch MacBook Pro with the M2 chip should exist. Apple keeps saying these are the best-selling laptops in the world hilariously when I was editing the review. I asked him, like, where does this claim come from? And the answer is no one knows. (laughs) Like, you can't find a source for that claim, and analysts will tell you it doesn't mean much. But the argument that Apple made was, like, the Air is the best-selling laptop in the world per their internal Apple metrics that they will not share, and the MacBook Pro is the second best-selling laptop in the world. And you kind of end up in a place where you've got a little bit of differentiation between the two now in terms of if you have a real camera and you want to shoot raw photos, the pro is a better choice for you. Yeah, but the 14-inch pro is really where you should be looking.
4: But it's an M1. <sighs> but,
2: like who cares? Like I, I, care. I guess that's like my question is like does it really does that really matter? Yes. The battery life is like basically the same. The battery life is better on the M2
5: Pro. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> the MacBook Pro with M2 processor has better battery life than the MacBook Air with M2 processor. However, the MacBook Air with M2 has more than sufficient battery life for basically like most any situation. I was getting eight to 10 hours of real real battery life usage out of it uh, in my tests. And for whatever reason, batteries never last long for me. So like to get eight to 10 hours is more than I get with other computers. If you need more than that, then, yeah, there's the MacBook Pro with M2 there. But now it's like we're getting to a point of, like, diminishing returns on that. Like, are you just not going to plug it in at night? Okay, maybe that's your situation. But, like, most people are able to plug in their laptop at night and then go a whole other workday without having to charge it again.
4: I still think the M2 MacBook Pro now has a very good reason to exist. Because I am looking at this. I'm looking at the M2 Air. I'm looking at the 14-inch macbook pro with the m1 is it an MRO pro yeah
5: (laughs) m1 pro yep
4: i am looking at these horrible names and that's my first problem but no i'm I'm looking at it and i'm like the m2 air is really appealing but what if i am what if i do want to like it mean 4k export you had almost a two minute difference that's not nothing
5: yeah you can like buy the m2 macbook pro save a few seconds on that 4k export you do once a year And give up the better screen, the better camera, MagSafe charging, the lighter weight, the better design. You're giving up a whole port because you don't have MagSafe on the M2 MacBook Pro. Like, there's so many things that you give up in terms of, like, everyday quality of life things that are better on the air that it's not worth saving the 30 seconds on that export that you do once a year.
4: That's two minutes, according <laughs> two minutes. to your, your well, it, own metrics here?
5: I will say this. I, I put this note into our review. If you're just looking at the charts, you're not getting the full story. Yeah. Premiere Pro is like screwed up right now. Yeah, something Premier weird's Pro going Premiere Pro 22 is giving us slower export times than Premiere Pro 15 on the same machines. Oh, weird. I've reached out to Adobe, talking to them about it, Figuring it out, what's going on there, but that is like an actual real thing that's happening. I wouldn't base your purchase decision on Premiere <laughs> Pro export.
2: To be clear, don't ba- base your purchase decision on how Adobe products perform has been true for one decade. Good advice. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like you just don't do, that. Don't do I, that. I guess what I'm getting at is all that other stuff, right? The quality of life on the Air is better than the hold over MacBook Pro design, right? There's a slightly bigger, nicer screen. Mm-hmm. You get the ports back. It's thinner. And you step up to the 14-inch Pro, you get an even better screen. Even better screen, more ports, more power. It's just weird to me because I remember, like, David and I at the event being told over and over again, like, people jumping out of bushes behind the Steve Jobs Theater, being <laughs> like, we designed that processor and the computer together, right? That was the overwhelming message, like, Apple's integrated design philosophy is, like, these two things were designed in concert. What I'm kind of stuck at is, like, the old Air was designed around the thermals of an Intel chip. Kind
5: of. If you remember with that old Intel Air, it was really funny because it had a fan way out on, like, the left side of the computer that was so far away from the processor, it basically did nothing. Right. So it was kind of funny how that design worked. And then, like, you know, we've got this new one that's thinner and summer. I think what we're seeing is that for a MacBook Air computer... What they are prioritizing is thin design, weight, and other quality of life features. And they are putting enough thermal headroom to give a certain level of performance out of the M2. And if you need more performance than that, you are an a MacBook Pro customer. I think that's what we're seeing here.
3: And I think there's there's... Two pieces of that that Dan, you and I were talking about in the in the course of doing this review. One is that almost everyone who buys this computer is going to be coming from an Intel computer, and mm-hmm. the like vibes upgrade of that is just going to be gigantic. Like, yeah, right. it is insane. I went from an Intel to an M1 when I joined the Verge, and it's literally like I have still not gotten over that like giddy feeling of how long my battery lasts. And the M2 has the same kind of thing, so it's like that experience in real life is going to be a massive leap for people and. The challenge with these benchmarks is they're so not representative of most people's actual day to day lives. And and a thing I always enjoy about a Dan review is that you you are like the the like power casual user where you're like, I'm not doing weird <laughs> stuff on my computer, but I do have one hundred and sixty one Chrome tabs open. So, like, let's see what happens. And I feel like the the sense I got from you was that, like, as a as a normal person who uses their computer pretty hard. You were never seeing the ceiling of this computer, and I feel like that's the thing that Apple is is going for. And I, I, I think if you throw out the MacBook Pro with M2 and the stupid Touch Bar, which I think it eventually Apple is going to throw that out, you're going to have the Air at one price, and you're going to have the 14 to 16 inch Pro at a very different price. And those two things, like it's just two different customers who will like self select the thing that they need. And I feel like in that sense. The air being this kind of performance makes total sense to me,
4: and the price is a pretty big difference. Like I think you know we we talk a lot about like we'll save up your your money, but like that's it's five hundred dollars if you want the same storage capacity, right? It's like, a lot. If you want yeah, five hundred and twelve. If you if you're like no, I just want a computer that goes two hundred fifty six is more than enough for me. It's not. Don't do that. You're being dumb. But if you are gonna be dumb like that, that's a you know it's an eight hundred seven hundred dollar difference depending on the the device. And I do kind of see that that calculus. I think if I was like broke ass needing a new computer and I'm a little wary of the brand new MacBook Air because it's a totally new design and I might be a little scared of that because historically Apple is not always great at their first of a brand new redesign and I've got limited budget. I know I really need battery life. I know I'm going to need to sometimes use speed. Like that MacBook Pro 13-inch almost makes sense would I buy it personally absolutely not I'm just gonna get the iPad
2: (laughs) wait what (laughs) yeah I don't know Alex just like threw a bomb into this is is that Greg Joswiak is that who that is talking right now like I was
3: like slightly on your side about the pro and then you said that and now now I'm out I'm with Dan now
2: well so actually let's talk about the storage and the pricing for a minute because they the interplay here is fascinating
4: this pricing should be illegal by the way
2: It's all over the place. So let's start with the storage, because the storage is like a complicated factor in the pricing. Yeah, well,
5: I think it's actually, let's talk about the pricing. The pricing is more expensive than the older model. So it starts $200 more for the same amount of RAM and storage as the M1 version. So you're already starting at a higher place in terms of cost. And then that base storage, which uh, was the same problem with the MacBook Pro M2, and um, over on YouTube, Max Tech has done a ton of testing on that model, the base storage. They've determined that the uh, 256 gigabytes of storage in that model is noticeably slower than the other models, and slower than the M1 generation. Uh, And Apple confirmed that the storage configuration in the base $1,200 MacBook Air with 256 gigs of storage is the same as the base MacBook Pro M2, which means that it only has one storage chip as opposed to two. And the knock-on effect to that is that it is about half as fast in speed testing, file transfers, heavy multitasking, things like that. So there's a noticeable speed difference in the base model versus one that has 512 or more gigs of storage.
4: Like you're going to notice it coming from Intel. Like, you'll notice it and be like, why is my computer so slow? Like The the videos they've done, the the, the speed tests, show that it's, like, egregiously slow. Like, you should not be shipping this Apple.
5: If you are using it like David described, how I use a computer, I will hit the system hard enough to make that storage be a noticeable problem. It is not necessarily you have to be editing 4K or 8K video or running 800 RAW files. You can do it with 45 Chrome tabs and a zoom window and a slack window and multiple spaces and all the menu bar apps and stuff like that that I use. Like you can saturate the RAM, cause the system to hit swap. And then when it hits swap with that slower storage, it will slow down and you will notice how much slower it is.
2: We should read this whole quote from Apple about this, by the way, because you have a whole quote from from Apple in the review. So. The gist of this quote is basically the M2 is so fast it doesn't matter. But here's the whole quote. (laughs) Thanks to the performance increases of the M2, the new MacBook Air and the 13-inch MacBook Pro are incredibly fast, even compared to Mac laptops with a powerful M1 chip. Amazing sentence, by the way. (laughs) Powerful. Sure. These new systems use a new higher-density NAND that delivers 256 gigs of storage using a single chip. That's the confirmation. While the benchmarks of the 256 gig SSD may show a difference compared to the previous generation. The performance of these M2 based systems for real world activities are even faster. So they're, they're copying to it, I would say, but they're I think the approach is, but overall it's so much faster. You won't notice. I just think if you're going to ship it with eight gigs and remember that eight gigs of Ram is unified memory, right? That is shared between the CPU and the GPU. Like you're, your ability on the we've had M1s for a long time now. People hit that eight gig RAM threshold in unified memory a lot. So if you're gonna ship eight gigs and then you're gonna go to swap on the hard drive to swap memory in and out of the hard drive, and then the hard drive is slower, like the poor M2 is just like starved for data. Yeah. Like it can run real fast, but it it's it's actually bottlenecked by the storage and the memory. Which again, I think comes back to this pricing situation for me.
5: Right, exactly. So then that means that in a uh, to get a M2 MacBook Air that doesn't have this storage bottleneck, you need to step up to 512 gigabytes, which is the 1499 tier. That's the model that I reviewed with 8 gigabytes of RAM, 512 gigs of storage. I definitely hit swap on that 8 gigs of RAM in my testing. Like I saw it there. I, I, I saw it with the system monitoring apps. But it like didn't slow me down because that storage was fast enough to keep up. But now this is a $1,500 computer. And then a lot of folks would say, and, and I can see this argument that, hey, you should, Neelon would say this, you should probably get 16 gigs of RAM in there because you want this computer to last five years or more. And you're going to need that headroom. Now we're at sixteen or $1,700, whatever the upgrade is for that. And that's a lot of money for what was initially a $1,000 computer you know, MacBook Air. This is like the entry level MacBook.
2: I'm just saying, and if you are at $1,700, buy a 14 inch MacBook Pro for $2,000. Right. Yes. I can see that argument. Which comes with 16 gigs of RAM and 512 gigs of storage. Yes. and,
5: And it comes with the more powerful M1 Pro chip. However, it is noticeably heavier. It's almost a pound heavier. It is thicker and it is bigger. So like if those metrics matter to you that like I'm taking my computer all over the place all over the time or maybe I, I do need longer battery life you will get longer battery life out of the m2 air than out of the m1 macbook pro 14
2: God. but here's what here's all i'm saying like and, all that like right and we're, now we're just like doing we're just like narrating a spreadsheet let yes. me just back this all the way out when the m1 air came out the line we printed Dieter bones review this thing is a triumph and we were like Apart from this garbage webcam, it's a ten out of ten. Like this is the only laptop most people should consider. And yeah. my only note was like, just get more RAM because you're gonna, you'll never regret having more RAM in your computer. Right. Home run. Like whatever price point. Right. Now we're talking about the M2 Air, and it's like caveat after caveat that gets you to two thousand dollars, and maybe you should just buy the other one that's the shocking thing to me, right? Yes. I think that when I say it's not surprising, okay, the chip is better. The design is beautiful. The quality of life improvement, the camera is better, all that stuff. The shocking thing to me is that I'm like, uh, which one do you buy? Like, I will tell you, we never
5: needed to have the conversation of, should this be a 10? Like, obviously like, you know, we're evaluating products and and we want everything to be a 10, but like, there was never that debate of like, is this a perfect laptop? Because it's not. Once you factor in the pricing and how expensive this is now, like there's no way this is a 10 out of 10. It's got all these great improvements. It's like a better quality of life in many ways. And it's an excellent laptop. And I think everyone that buys it is going to be really happy with it. But like where we were two years ago with the M1 Air, debating whether we give this thing a nine or 10 because of the webcam, like that conversation just does not apply here because of all these, you know, caveats that you've been mentioning.
4: This is kind of Apple- being Apple, too, right? Like, I think it was part of the shock of that M1 MacBook Air was it was so good that you didn't really have questions. There were no caveats. Whereas typically, Apple is like, look at this great thing, 40,000 caveats, the price is actually now (laughs) $4,000.
5: Also, there was no alternative. Yeah. Like, the M1 Air was like the computer to buy. Now it's like, oh, you can still buy the M1 Air. So like, there's an actual legitimate alternative at a lower price point that performs nearly as well.
2: Do we know if the new M1 Air is doing single chip storage at 256? It is not. It is not.
4: That was the thing that I think is most egregious about this, is they were doing two 128 chips. And with, with the M2, they moved to one 256 chip. Likely because they're going to sell more 512s, which are two 256 chips. So this was very likely – like I think that was one of the videos the Max Tech video noted is that this was very likely a supply chain thing of like this is just going to be cheaper for us. Why buy a bunch of 128s for these bought like
5: – Or – they could have just started at 512
4: with the two <laughs> chips. This is a $1,200 computer. That's what you and I would do. But margins, man, you got to you gotta get the margins.
2: You got to keep them right at 40. That's, that's Apple's move, 40%. <laughs> but here's, I guess what I'm saying, if, if the M1 Air that's still for sale does not have this storage compromise at its base model, it's a better base model than the M2 Air base model. Yes. So the choice is really, do I just buy an M1 Air base model because I don't have a bunch of money? or do I spend a little bit more money to upgrade the storage and I would tell you the RAM because you no one has ever been sad about having too much RAM.
5: My advice would be if you are looking at the $1200 MacBook Pro or MacBook Air M2 and you are not able to spend any more than $1200, just save the extra 200 bucks and buy the base M1 Air, which you can also now get like refurbished or on sale, you will save more than $200 on it because they're frequently available for like 850 or 900 bucks. And then buy a webcam. Yeah. And buy a webcam. Yeah. Uh, so, like, like that's a move. That's why, like, in the review, I specifically said, I think this is an excellent computer if you are willing to spend $1,500 or more on it. If you are not, buy the M1 Air.
4: I'm just going to get an iPad. <laughs> or, or whatever Alex is saying. I'm going to get that iPad Pro. It's going to be great. Just a skin, thinny. Yeah.
2: Or whatever, whatever chaos thing Alex is suggesting.
4: It's going to be great. It'll cost me $4,000.
2: You know, other computers exist. Outside of this ecosystem.
4: They do. It's true.
5: And and they will come with 512 gigs of storage on their base models. And
3: better webcams. Can we actually talk about the webcam for a second? Because sure. I think we have established that we probably here on the Vergecast care more about webcams than most people. And so we're just going to lean into it's that. That's all I
2: care about. Uh, I know. I'm well aware of this fact. I'm using a 2015 iMac, but I got an RX100 <laughs> mounted above it. That's how I live. Yeah. So how much better
5: is this webcam? Uh, it's markedly better. Uh, it's So it's 1080p versus 720, so it's higher resolution to start with. But it's also got better exposure, better color, better detail, better contrast. Like, it's just overall, all the metrics you can think of in terms of, like, image quality are improved with this model. It's the exact same camera that's in the MacBook Pro 14 and 16, so it's just moved right downstream to the air, which is great. And, like, it is remedying the one big complaint we had with the M1 Air in that it had a lousy webcam. This is a more than competitive webcam. I don't think you're going to find a much better webcam in other laptops than the model in this.
3: Okay. I mean, that's encouraging because I I do think I I, like to the point about the M1 Air, I came, I I went into the review expecting to be like, Oh dear God, Dan's about to talk me into buying a computer. I absolutely do not need. And then I look at the pictures of the midnight color and I'm like, I need that. And then I look at all the fingerprints on the M1 or on the midnight (laughs) color. And I'm like, I don't need that anymore. And then I look at the webcam and it's like, oh, okay, well, that would be nice. But then I come to the end of it and it's like, okay, if I'm just like a regular person who wants to buy a new laptop, I think the base M1 is going to keep being the thing I recommend to most people.
5: I think that's going to continue to be Apple's best-selling laptop. And it's it's funny because a uh, friend of the site, end of the Vergecast, Joanna, for years had a famous catchphrase when she was reviewing a laptop. Windows laptops. That said for $300 more, you can just get a MacBook Air. And here it's like... For two hundred dollars less, <laughs> you can just get an M1 MacBook Air. Yep.
2: Yeah, she's struggling with this. She's got to you know update the catchphrase for this era of, of computers. Yeah, it's not as pithy anymore. It's kind of amazing, right, that they fixed the webcam and the the M2 Air in a thinner chassis than the Studio Display.
5: Yeah, I think the lid is not much difference in thickness. A lot of the thin uh, the the thickness savings is in the the bottom half of it. But yeah, it is still a very thin lid.
2: I'm fascinated by this. Please let us know if you think this pricing spreadsheet is confusing as we do. Because it, to me, I just look at it, I'm like, I don't even know what a computer by anymore. And it's like, oh, the answer is a 16-inch MacBook Pro. The only <laughs> size of computer that I've ever loved. I'm going to
5: plug. <laughs> stay tuned for more coverage. We've got a base model incoming. Like I said, I reviewed the $1,499 tier. We do have a $1,200 tier incoming. We're going to test the heck out of it, see exactly how slow is slow with this. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Look to TheVerge.com.
2: Alright, we gotta take a break, Dan. Thank you so much. We're gonna jump off of this. We'll come back with Liz Lopato. We're gonna talk about Elon.
0: We'll be right back. Support for The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash VergeCast. That's all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash VergeCast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash VergeCast.
1: Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Okay, we're back. Liz Lapato is here. Hey, Liz. Hey,
6: how's it going, guys?
2: You're so chipper for what we're about to do. (laughs)
3: Liz was telling me the other day that every time she goes on vacation, Elon Musk does something insane, which I feel like is something you really should have told us before you went on vacation last (laughs) week. Uh,
6: Listen, man, we wouldn't have been ready because every time it's a surprise. Like, I remember I was coming back from Glacier National Park. Like, I had been out of cell phone range for several days and I... Finally got service, and immediately the thing that pops up on my phone is all of these alerts about Elon Musk smoking weed on the Joe Rogan podcast. So that was that was then, and then last week I was um, I was in Northern California.
2: That was such a simpler time. Do you remember he did that, and then like NASA had to be like, ah, we got to like do something about this, <laughs> right? And like right, and it was like oh, the, like the machinery of authority is like worried about weed. It was just like. I would take it. Like, Uh let's go back. Like, now we're just like, the SEC is just running around with its pants pulled down all the time. Like, (laughs) it's escalated.
6: It has escalated. This is not a threat, but a promise, Twitter and Elon Musk, that I will be in the courtroom (laughs) if you go to trial in Chancery Court. So think carefully about whether you want that.
2: (laughs) You may recall that Elon Musk said he was going to buy Twitter at fifty four twenty a share, a number that all of us can remember because it's the weed number.
1: It's Blaze very it.
2: Good. <laughs> very good. All that financing was heavily tied to Tesla, whose stock at the time was riding high. Elon sold a bunch of Tesla stuff. He put together a syndicate with a bunch of people, including Andreessen Horowitz, to come up with the rest of the financing. He had a bunch of banks lined up. Then the stock market decided it didn't like anyone anymore and went down. So then Elon started tweeting about how Twitter had too many bots, which was the reason he wanted to buy Twitter to stop the bots, but now it's got too many bots and he needed needed to verify how many bots there actually were. Twitter said it was going to provide him with a bunch of data, back and forth, back and forth. Elon, a couple weeks ago, files the SEC a letter that he'd sent to Twitter saying, I'm out. You've lied to me too much. I've terminated the deal, which was very funny because the the first thing you learn in contracts law as a first-year law student is that you can't just do that. <laughs> so, okay. So he's he, he declares bankruptcy, right? I <laughs> declare this deal terminated. Uh, many lawyers, like one of the most expensive letters I've seen, like four different law firms, three lawyers from each law firm, and they're like, this deal is terminated, which is confusing. Twitter responds with this tweet from the chairman of the Twitter board, Brett Taylor, and it just says, we will prevail in the Delaware Court of Chancery, which is just in the realm of threats. <laughs> Just one of the nerdiest threats that has ever been issued in the world.
4: I'll see you in Chancery Court. <laughs> like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, it's like, it's the
2: equivalent of like throwing your glasses at someone. Like, it's <laughs> no one's afraid of you. Okay, so they say this. And then this week, they Twitter files the lawsuit, file the complaint uh, against Elon in the Delaware Court of Chancery, saying, Elon basically lied to us he concocted the scheme and then he's a liar and a hypocrite and at the end of it the relief they ask for is for elon to be forced to buy twitter which is amazingly circular we're like this guy sucks we hate him he lied to us it's (laughs) all a ruse and the solution is he should own us which is (laughs) bonkers
4: well, it's not from them, though, right? Like, like, it's not the people working there. It's the board being like, yeah, you said you were going to give us all this money, give it to us, buy us out, effectively.
3: We we should say, by the way, before we get too deep into this, that the Twitter filing is one of the great legal filings in recent memory.
6: Yeah, and it's extremely readable. And it's also got like the poop emoji tweet, which you may remember from Parag Agrawal, the CEO of Twitter, saying, you know, we've provided Elon with all of this stuff. That's, you know, about the bot stuff that he was asking about. And Elon's like poo emoji. And uh, that's in a legal filing. And if we're really lucky, it's gonna be in a legal textbook one day.
2: So actually Sarah Jong is writing a piece about this right now, many court systems do not support Unicode to the extent that they can render the poop emoji. So, <laughs> like, There's like a long body of law, like emoji law that exists, oh, wow. and like emoji oh experts... God. And like Sarah's right, it it should be on the site soon. She was very excited about it today.
6: Oh my God, emoji law. I'm so here for this. This is beautiful.
2: That was like my very quick summary of everything that's going on. But what is going on?
6: Well, the answer is no one knows, except Elon Musk is getting sued by a bunch of extremely scary lawyers. Because (laughs) the thing to keep in mind here is that when Twitter lawyered up, they didn't just hire any lawyers. They hired the firm that invented the poison pill which you may remember they deployed when Elon Musk initially was approaching them. And then one of the lawyers on their actual team spent 20 years in chancery court, as one does. (laughs) So I feel like maybe knows what's going on. You know, I I definitely think that this is like a team of lawyers who understood that filing was going to be really widely read and like wrote for us, which like, thank you. The thing that's interesting to me here is that this actually isn't that unusual a matter for chancery court. And I think maybe the the first thing I should I should pause and say is that chancery court is different from other kinds of court. It's a little more flexible in terms of remedies that they can apply. And it's also a bench trial. So what's going to happen is the judge is going to hear this, this case, and then make some calls. And chancery court has actually been very busy with a lot of merger and acquisition stuff uh, lately. Because you may remember there was this global pandemic in (laughs) 2020, and there were a lot of people who then tried to get out of their their deals because of it. There is one that I think we all know that I'm a Matt Levine stan. He writes for uh, Bloomberg, but he wrote about a cake decoration company that I think it was... I'm trying to remember which private equity firm, I think it was Kohlberg, had agreed to acquire. And then the pandemic happened and they were like, just kidding. And then they were forced to acquire the cake decoration company. So that was pretty cool. That's kind of standard, actually. And the one sort of big exception to this is a case about a medical company that's best known for kidney dialysis in the United States, Friesnius. And they were going to acquire a company called Acorn. And then they discovered that Acorn had been like engaging in actual fraud and tried to terminate the deal. And the court supported that. And so it kind of has to be a big deal lie that is material to the business that really, really matters for Elon Musk to have a case. And I just feel like everything that I have seen about the bots has been so transparently like bad faith buyer's remorse that I can't imagine the judge is going to have a lot of patience for this.
2: So one thing I just want to say really quickly, material is like one of my favorite lawyer words it just means important. And like <laughs> about halfway through law school, you're like, what the fuck does material mean? And it's like, it just means important. And like immaterial, everybody understands and material is, And it's just very funny. Cause we keep throwing this word around material adverse event, because that's the thing that would undo the deal. And all it means is like important enough. Right. It's even, it's, it's important only
3: more vague, which seems like kind of the point of what they're going for. It's like, it, That's why like, lawyers
2: invented this word. Yeah,
4: exactly. <laughs> you go to court to argue it.
3: And, yeah, and to Liz's point, like this, Elon Musk seems to have picked bots as
2: the thing. Like for whatever reason. Okay, so let's let's talk about this element of the filing where he's he says he's worried about the bots. So you read read the complaint. It is very readable. It it is written like a caper. It is very much written for public consumption so they can win in the court of public opinion. There was like uh, Market Watch or somebody had a piece today. That was like Twitter stock is going back up because people have stopped believing Elon and they believe Twitter now. And like, which is just incredible stock market analysis, as Liz is fond of saying, money is just feelings. That's why the stock is up. Because you're like, yeah, hey, that seems right. Like, fine. That's how everything works. So there's this entire section in the thing, all the back and forth about how the deal is done, all these like random characters from the ghost of business past show up. Like the old CEO of Intel is here for some reason. And then he gets clipped. Like weird. But the heart of this. Is he says, I'm worried about the bots. Give me access to your data. So Twitter gives him some access to firehose data, which is all the tweets. Well, but not even that. You missed one step that's actually very important,
3: which is Twitter says, this data that you're asking for is not what you need to do the evaluation that you claim
2: you'd like to do. And he says, I don't care. Give it to me anyway. So they give it to him. <laughs> right. And that, But it's the firehose of tweets. Right. And then he comes back and says, you didn't give me what I needed. I can't run all the queries. And Twitter goes and looks. And he's hit the rate limit of queries, which is like 100,000 queries a day or so. It's like some huge number. I don't remember exactly what it is. And they say, what are you doing? And he's like, don't worry about it. I need to keep doing it. So then they give him more access to querying the firehose than any commercial customer that has access to the firehose would need. And he's querying likes, like what people are liking on Twitter. It's unclear, by the way, who's doing this. Like that part of it, it all comes to a head because Twitter is like, look. He has told us what the choices are. He's either going to be on our board, which he rejected. He's going to buy Twitter, which he said he was going to do, or he's going to start a competitor. And now we've given him tons of access to our fire hose. We don't know what he's been doing. It's not the thing, as David said, it's not the thing you need to do to verify bots. We're not going to give him that information. You do need to verify bots, which is like people's phone numbers, their identities, all the other identity data Twitter has. But he's been querying us for weeks At this high rate, we're not going to let him leave and start a competitor. So the only option is for Elon to be forced to buy Twitter, which I cannot tell if that is a brilliant piece of legal strategy that they've been executing slowly this whole time or just like the most Twitter chaos I've ever heard in my entire life.
3: So the argument is like he knows too much, which is ordinarily like what they say in the mob movie before they kill someone. And instead, it's like, he must own
2: us. <laughs> <laughs> he has no choice but to buy this pizza restaurant.
4: That was like one part of the argument, right? Like the other part of it was like, he said he was going to do it. He also said he, did, he waived the right to have any data at all. He waived due diligence. Yeah. So he doesn't get to come back and say, wait a minute, I feel bad and that was stupid. And like, yeah, you should feel bad. That was stupid. Elon, $44 billion, stupid. Real stupid. Yeah, so I
6: think I think one of the things that we should keep in mind here is that as a practical matter, if you're Twitter, you want more than the $1 billion breakup fee that you're promised in the contract, right?
2: Because you could have had $44 billion.
6: Right. And so maybe you want to be acquired by Elon Musk, but... Even if you're just looking for a higher payout, filing this lawsuit is the leverage you need to make that happen, because then you can like sit down and make a deal where Elon Musk pays more than that breakup fee and you walk away or he acquires you for less money, which like I think is not actually a win for Twitter. And like I think the least winning thing for Twitter is just getting the one billion dollars that's specified in the contract like that's actually for them, I think, a loss. So I think Twitter is heavily incentivized to play hardball here. And, like, one of the things that I noticed reading this filing is that they allege that Musk has violated the terms of the contract himself multiple times. And so whatever he has to say doesn't count, which, like, I do love a good neener-neener, and that's what that is. (laughs) So there's, like, a kind of a lot going on. And I am just extremely curious, because it seems like there's a lot of leverage that Twitter has here. Like, they've just been sitting here and, like, waiting for him to, like you know, screw up, which he's done repeatedly, Um, just stepping on rake after rake. So I'm interested to see how this gets used in court, because, again, I would prefer that they did not settle.
2: So wait. So, Liz, I'm inclined to agree with you, but I just want to push on a little bit. It feels like Elon wants to walk away. He wrote his threatening letter saying, I'm terminating the deal. His implication in that letter is that Twitter breached the deal and they owe him a billion dollars. Because right? the the way the contract is written, whoever causes the deal to go astray owes the other one a billion dollars. So his letter is, you pay me a billion dollars and I'm out.
4: No, you pay me.
2: Twitter's letter is not, pay us a billion dollars and walk away. It's, no, you have to pay us $44 billion and then also run Twitter, the gravest threat that anyone can truly <laughs> issue. <laughs> If someone came to me and was like, you're in charge of Twitter, I'd be like, I really have to think about this. Like,
3: I don't. Do you think if they went to Elon and said, you can give us $44 billion to not own Twitter, like at this point, <laughs> he would just walk away from it.
2: Well, I think that's kind of what Liz is getting at, right? Like he, they're saying you can pay us some number between one and $44 billion and that will end this. But to, to even begin that conversation, you have to start with, or the Delaware court of Chancery will order you to pay us all the money and run Twitter. And so the real answer is, like, what's the number that ends the saga for both of them?
6: Yeah, I'm really hoping for forty four billion dollars. I actually don't care whether Twitter is actually bought by Musk or he's just forced to, like, disgorge that to Twitter shareholders, because, like, having to pay that much money to not own Twitter is personally very funny to me. I would be aiming to get like, again, the whole thing here is shareholder value, right? Like that's. I have a whole lot of thoughts about like what fiduciary duty means in the context of Elon Musk attempting to buy your company, which you can read on the verge.com. But the thing that I'm thinking about here is like they are now going to try to get as much money for their shareholders as possible. And that deal had a nice premium for shareholders, especially relative to the current Twitter price. So I think that, you know, if you're Twitter, you're not probably going to let him walk away cheaply. And, like, ideally, he's going to be paying at least what the current share price is to shareholders who will continue to keep their shares.
4: I just have a real question about Elon himself. Like, we saw, obviously, this week that, <laughs> that the, the analysts are saying we actually think he's a big dum-dum, so we are, we are now valuing Twitter stock higher because he seems to be such a big dum-dum. Is he really being a big dum-dum, or is this secretly, like, all some big plot?
6: So this is a recurring question on the Elon Musk beat, and there are... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. Everybody says he's genius. Is he not a genius? Mm, so oh, yeah. here's the thing about the Elon Musk master plan through, like, 4D chess, whatever yeah. stuff. Is The reason I don't buy it is because he so demonstrably has no fucking impulse control <laughs> that, like, I just I can't imagine him ever executing a plan. Like, I cannot imagine him executing a plan.
4: I mean, it seems like he went out and executed a plan on how to get sued in chancery court. Like, like that was, like, he just, like, somebody gave him, like, a list, and he was like, I'm going to do every single thing on it so I get sued in chancery court. Like, does he just love the court?
2: I just. I mean, it's very funny. Like the word "chancery court" is deeply hilarious, and we should all say it more often. Though, yes. Honestly, but like every corporation is headquartered in Delaware, and every corporate dispute ends in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Right. And like Delaware as a state has decided what it's good at is corporations, which yeah. is a really weird identity to chase after. Is like a politic, like a political collection. You know, like you're like, what are we as a state? And like Wisconsin's like. The Packers. To be fair,
3: though, like, we're not talking about Rhode Island on this podcast. Like, big ups <laughs> to Delaware. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying.
6: That's right. You got to pick a bit and stick with it. Yeah. yeah.
2: Like, Maryland's crab cakes and football. And Delaware's like, uh, corporate <laughs> legal disputes.
6: Like It's just very strange.
2: Anyway, so, like, yeah, it's like he did all the things. But, like, ultimately, he did all the things to some end, right? Like, he started buying the Twitter stock without telling anyone for some reason he agreed to be on the board because he, and he said some of it transparently. He thinks Twitter is great. He thinks it's the, it can extend the light of consciousness. He thinks the world needs a neutral plat, like all these things that he said, I don't actually doubt that he feels that way about Twitter, given his obvious love of Twitter. Like that makes sense to me. I think the market crashing is like the thing that really changed everything. And I think getting cash out of Tesla because he sold a bunch of Tesla stock and now he just has the cash and he's not using it by Twitter. Like he's just swimming around in it like Scrooge McDuck. That's why I assume he's doing like if, if I suddenly like sold a bunch of stock that I wasn't really allowed to sell because it would signal my lack of confidence in the company that I'm most associated with. And then I had eight and a half billion dollars and no one was wondering why if like, maybe I shouldn't spend this on Twitter. Right. Does that seem like a more likely outcome?
3: That's one of the conspiracy theories that's floating around the internet is that this was a really elaborate ruse for Elon to be able to sell an enormous amount of Tesla stock without any of the ramifications that would normally come from selling that much Tesla stock.
6: Here's the thing about these Elon Musk conspiracy theories is that they continue to also paint him as like a genius, but like a genius of like misbehavior, who's like got dastardly plans and whatever that he's executing over like some like timeline and like he really knows what's going on. Like he knew the market was going to crash, so he pulled his money out of Tesla. Yeah, I don't buy that. Again... Because, like, this is a man with no impulse control. And, like, (laughs) over and over again we have seen this. We have watched him, like, unexpectedly announce stuff at... Uh, press events where other people, like the Neuralink press event where he announced that like they were in monkeys and like his head of research was like, I didn't know we were announcing that today. That was the <laughs> thing that happened. I was there. You know, like this is this is a guy who I, I think really shoots from the hip. And if you're going to do any analysis of Elon Musk, you've got to be pretty clear that he's got a super short attention span and that he is not you know, necessarily going to stick to what he says. And like, as for the, the, com- the competitor argument that he's going to build a Twitter competitor, I think it is very funny. And I'll tell you why. Thud. For those of you who do not remember the uh, very short-lived Elon Musk satirical effort thud, it's because he pulled the plug on it right before it launched, um, it had no business plan, and the goal was just to like, bring joy to the internet. Like They hired some like former Onion writers after he didn't buy the Onion. And so like I imagine any competitor that he makes from Twitter, separately from whatever those searches show, is gonna be just as half-assed, and just a, like slap together without really having a business plan. And I just, you know, we already have Truth Social.
2: Yeah. Which, by the way, is going to get sued because of a weird SPAC merger, which will also probably happen in the Delaware Quarter Chancery. Right? Yes. This
6: so excited for that one.
2: The place to be.
3: So, Liz, I know you have to go, but I have one more very like specific question that I have and the internet has that I'm hoping that you can answer. Uh, and it comes back to the billion-dollar breakup fee thing. Like At some point, could Elon Musk just like wake up, decide to not deal with this nonsense anymore write a check for a billion dollars and walk away and this is all over or have we like passed the point where that is a thing he's able to do
6: i think we've passed the point where that's a thing that he's able to do because if if i'm twitter i'm i'm definitely holding out for more than a billion dollars and i've got my cool little lawsuit and my very expensive lawyers to get me that stuff and that's what i'm gonna do
3: so twitter just tears up that check and says see you in delaware
2: That's right. Whips his glasses at someone. Um, I don't know why that's a visual I have, but it's very compelling. Um, They also like, I mean, the problem for Twitter now is that the employees have no faith in that management or that board, right? It seems like they have failed to manage the situation in any realistic way the whole time. They're just not great at standing up for themselves. Let me just ask all of you this. I have found myself using Twitter less and less since this began. I'm just like, I don't need to contribute to this platform. Like, nothing good is happening here to anyone. I don't need to be a part of it. And then, like, I'm still addicted to it, so I still use it. Did you find that, too, that your desire to, like, participate has gone down? Yes.
4: N- no. It's increased. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I just like, I'm tweeting from my <laughs> iPad all day long. Yeah,
4: tweeting from the iPad, sinking the ship. It's great. The band's playing. We're having a great time over here.
6: No, I mean, like, look, I'm I'm a trash raccoon, right? Like, I love garbage. Of course, I'm on Twitter. Like, hello. Like, like Twitter and Reddit, man. Like, they're just the worst stuff. I do think that it's. It's certainly going to be a crisis point for Twitter. And I think that's part of the reason that they have a really good argument for getting much more money out of Elon Musk, because he has really screwed the pooch on this one. And like the board can make its argument that, yeah, like we're representing shareholders you know interest because that's our job. And I'm sorry the employees don't like it, but like representing the employees is not so much our job. But I think, you know, if suddenly Twitter has this exciting influx of several billion dollars to spend on for instance developing new products or hiring new engineers or you know, making the tideline go sideways, yeah. then, yeah, then I think that's a huge win for Twitter despite the fact that, you know, obviously a lot of people are very unhappy right now.
2: All right, well, as always with Elon, we'll just wait and see what happens tomorrow and we'll have Liz back very soon.
6: <laughs> see you in Delaware!
2: <laughs> we'll chancery later, my friends. We love you, Liz, we'll talk to you later, we'll be right back.
1: Bye, guys. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. Constantcontact.com. Support for this show comes from Slack.
3: You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use
6: a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens
2: We're back. We're, we're going to talk about gashes again. It's going to be great.
4: We're going to talk about nothing.
2: Hey, we are. Well, briefly. David, the, the, get, get into it. So nothing announced the phone one. It's weird. You're going to talk about it more next week, I think, but tell me about it.
3: Yeah. So nothing is my least favorite named company possibly on planet earth right now. Cause it, all it has done is made it impossible to talk about. But, uh, after like months of hype and then eventually just like leaking everything, uh, nothing launched the phone one. It's a, it's a starts at 399 euros. It's actually like a thoroughly mid-range Android phone. Uh, but it has some cool stuff, some of which we've talked about on the show, like the it has lights on the back and does some neat stuff when you charge and has some cool ringtones and a like 8-bit wallpaper thing going on. We're gonna talk a bunch more about this next week. Allison Johnson on our team has one and has been playing with it and using it and she's gonna have a lot of thoughts and John Porter on our team has also used it and so we're, we're gonna bring them together and talk about it. But I feel like we've gone through this like crazy months long hype cycle and I, I I feel nothing, is the honest truth. Like, I get to the, all, the end of all this, and I just don't care about this phone.
4: It's just a whole lot of nothing. Right? Allison did tell me that this was one of the hardest, like, things for her to write, because just the urge to have a pun every single sentence was just, like, too great.
3: Oh, yeah. You, you either can't use the word nothing ever in ever. your story, or you have to use it in every single sentence.
2: Yeah, those are your two choices. <laughs> yeah. There's like a handful of phones that are not going to get sold in the United States. Like web traffic is a poor proxy for actual attention or importance, but we'll use it here. Like the, was it the Xiaomi M12 with the huge camera, monster camera, and then the nothing phone one, like they both, people just wanted to read about them for a minute. And then we were like, but here's the phone. And everyone was like, no, but the idea of this phone was actually much more interesting than the phone itself. A hundred
3: percent. And yeah. I
2: think that's like part of the nothing story. You guys will get into it, but it's, I would just say like the, it's interest. It's an interesting moment in tech when people are more excited about the idea of tech products than the products. And they're like, whatever, but blue bubbles. And they just like move on.
3: Well, which I think is part of why the nothing thing kind of worked, right? Cause their whole pitch this whole time has been the current state of consumer technology is boring. We need something new and different and exciting. And I think, I would like quibble pretty hard with the premise because like foldable phones are coming and AR glasses are coming and there's like really interesting stuff starting to happen in consumer
4: tech. Processors are super interesting right now.
3: Processors are super interesting. Uh, But then it's clear that like that idea resonates with a lot of people. And I think a lot of people signed up for this ride of like, show me something genuinely new and different that I will get down with. And it's the same with the Xiaomi phone where they're like, look at this bonkers camera we did. Or like I wrote a short thing about the these Asus raw gamer phones that people were super excited about. It's like people are desperate for something that isn't just an iPhone, but like nothing ever quite delivers. It seems you like. You did it. Nothing.
4: Yeah, that was uh, good one. Crap. That was great. It was perfect.
2: Get, <laughs> it. All right. We've got more or nothing coming on the Wednesday show next week. Uh, let's quickly talk about the, Back to Apple. Let's quickly talk about the Apple betas, because they're out. Some parts are great. Some parts are weird. Yeah. I'll just, let's start with the great stuff. Micro anger bursts. So we (laughs) got to recalibrate. You got to reset. You got to flush it all out.
4: No macro anger.
2: The lock screens on iOS 16 look really cool.
4: Allison loves them.
2: People love them. I mean, I'm excited about them. Uh, they're better at cutting out, uh, hair than portrait mode on the camera, which is funny <laughs> for, for like obvious reasons, right? They have more time. The pictures are already taken. You only got to do one once. so you got to do a live free, but it's just like very funny, but they're cool. Like widgets are, you know, Apple and widgets. We're going to figure it out. Continuity camera stuff in Ventura on the Mac looks cool where you can use your iPhone as a camera. It's buggy. It's in beta, but that's cool. It was a yeah. neat thing,
3: actually. Uh, Marquez Brownlee did a, I think it was like a YouTube short that I thought was really useful, where it's like, if you have a bunch of flat stuff on your desk, it actually works really well. And you get a good sense of like how it's trying to do it. Because if you hold the thing up or like give it any shape, it starts to morph. Like you can just tell how much processing that camera is trying to do to figure out what it's looking at on your desk. But it does seem, it seems to work pretty well. I'm
2: kind of impressed. Yeah. So, I mean, there's like good stuff in here, good ideas. And then there's stage manager, which David... I'll just let you let you run because it's a mess
3: stage manager. I I have not yet decided if stage manager is a horrible idea that no one ever should have come out of a meeting saying yes to or is a reasonable idea that is just not at all thought through. But basically, I got a I got an 11 inch M1 iPad. It's very good. Uh, Alex loves iPads can can confirm iPads have a lot of good things going for them installed the beta. You, you have to go to stage manager. It's like buried in settings. It's very much like a mode that you've on. And like, as soon as I turned it on, I stopped having any idea how to use my iPad. It was like <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, so basically the way that it works is like, you have, you have piles, which we've talked about is literally what they call them. That is Craig Federighi's word. They are piles on the left side of your screen. And then in the middle, you have the apps that you're using, and the the idea is that you can like stack or layer or put those apps side by side, however you want, and then sort of flip between piles. <laughs> it's like it's like <laughs> fancy spaces is essentially what it is. Um, you can just sort of see more going on at the same time, but it just does not work. Any app that wants to be full screen breaks it. Any app that only goes to certain sizes breaks it you leave it and you can't figure out how to get back it just sucks it's just like you get to this point where it's like i i would rather have only the thing where you can use one app at a time because at least i understand where i am on my ipad and it just drove me absolutely insane over the course of testing the thing
4: i remember when when macOS first rolled out mission control and everything there's a similar feeling of like what is happening and why like is it Worse, It sounds like it's worse than than mission control was.
3: It is because mission control is uh, it's like it's a thing you activate that right. sort of appears on top of what you're already doing. Whereas stage manager tries to like fit in with everything else you're doing, if that makes sense. So like you can use stage manager, but you can also have two apps side by side full screen. And if you were to say, David, if you have two apps side by side, full screen, is that part of stage manager? The honest answer is I don't know. <laughs> I, I spent, I spent days trying to figure this out and I, I don't know what is in stage manager and what isn't. And so like I, I wrote this in the, in the piece that I wrote, if Apple had gotten rid of every other window management system and just had stage manager, I would have been like, okay, I don't love this, but I sort of understand why it's here. Right. Like more access to more apps, more quickly. Fine. But to like stack it inside command tab and the menu at the top that lets you move windows around and the thing where you can drag windows around and slide over it's just there's like a hundred ways to do everything and only 40 percent of the apps support each one and it just it's just unrelenting chaos
2: all the time so that's my question is it just that apps aren't optimized for stage managers driving you crazy or it's just the general chaos It's both. The app thing is a huge piece of it.
3: Apple has these things called um, size classes that are basically like what they've always said is basically here are the the sizes your apps can be on an iPad screen. And they ask developers to essentially build an app that is each of those sizes so that when you want to use it in slide over, you can. And some apps have done that and some apps have not. Like Gmail will not let you use it in half screen, for instance, which has always irritated me. Now they have to do many, many, many more things because like if I want to put my app On my monitor, which is now a thing you can do on iPadOS 16, which is great, by the way, you just plug in a monitor, and it just treats it like a monitor. It's terrific. But if I want to do a full screen app on there, it's going to look like one thing. If I want to do a half screen app on there, it's going to look like another thing, which is actually different from what it would look like on the iPad, because the screen size is so different. And then, if I wanted to have it in stage manager, that's another thing. And then it's kind of freeform resizing on stage. So they're having to build these like fluid design systems that is just, it's possible and it'll get a lot better if those happen. But that's like, that's a lot of work for developers to do to get that right.
4: Which is the more unpleasant, we don't want to be a laptop, but we kind of want to be a laptop experience. This or Chrome OS with Android apps? Ooh. Chrome
2: OS with Android apps. It's Yeah, it is. You try to run an Android app on a Chrome OS or a Chromebook, and it's like, oh no, yeah,
3: yeah. At least on iPad, all the apps still open. Like where they are and what they do doesn't make sense, but they're they work on Android it's, or on Chrome OS. It's like, oh, you want to open an Android app? Like, come back in twenty minutes and we'll we'll let you know what happened.
4: That Instagram maybe opens in a corner.
3: Yeah, like we haven't decided if this is an Android app or not that you can <laughs> use.
2: So we'll come back. So what's really interesting to me about this is you know this idea. There are some tweets this week. Stage Manager as a concept has been floating on Apple for years. Right? Like this is this is one of the interface ideas that Apple's had forever and they just pulled it off the shelf and they shipped it this year. Steve
3: Jobs in Xerox Park in the 70s
2: just yelling <laughs> about piles. Well, you get you know, you get the feeling that they showed this to Steve Jobs and he was like, "No." No, no, no. This is the larger iPad strategy question, right? My understanding from every conversation I've ever had is that people buy iPads and Apple knows that they open one app at a time and they just like do iPad things and a bunch of like corporate executives love them because they send emails on planes and the pilots have a thing where they can strap an iPad mini to their thigh. And right. iPads are like kind of like perfect single application computers in a huge variety of contexts. And then there's some amount of people, us, the listeners of this podcast were like, but you keep telling us it's a laptop, make it do laptop things. And every year Apple's like, do you like this garbage? We won't think it through. And then we're supposed to be like, "Now it's a laptop. Like that feels like the dynamic we're in where we're complaining about this feature that maybe no iPad user's ever going to use. It's just like hard for me to tell. I think you're not wrong. Like I, I think there, there is
3: very clearly this subset of, ipad power users who like use their ipad as their primary device but use it for like real serious like multi-app multi-screen work and whether that's like 11 people who just all have big twitter followings or that's like a meaningful percentage of ipad users is very hard to know i would bet it's 11 people with large twitter followings if i was being completely honest, it's
4: actually you. just me in a very large suit
3: <laughs> it's, it's three Alexes stacked on top of each other uh, but but no, I think you're right. And so I think Apple has like leaned really hard into how do we give users more power user stuff to do without making it more complicated? And they're falling all over that line now, and it's it's to the point where it just is complicated now.
4: They're just getting like dumber, like like uh, sorry to all the engineers at Apple listening to this that worked on stage manager. But it does just feel like they they they're keep they keep looking for a solution in want of a problem. And, like, we've got solutions for all of this. You, in fact, have very lovely solutions for all of these things and zero desire to have those two interact. And I don't necessarily know if I want macOS on an iPad. Like, I like the iPad the way it is in a lot of respect. But you know how to do Windows? You could do those without this weird thing and it's just like it feels like they're constantly looking for these software reasons to explain why you should get a MacBook Air instead of an iPad.
2: I think that's the frame we constantly like bring to our conversations with folks and they're like no you don't understand everyone buys everything we make so it doesn't matter. Like if you have an iPad it's very likely you have a Mac if you have a Mac it's very likely you have an iPhone if you have an iPhone it's very likely that you have AirPods like Apple's ability to convert people into their entire ecosystem is second to none They're very proud of it. At the end of the day, the iPad now has, like, 15 different ways to manage Windows and applications. Apple hasn't picked which one is the way. None of them seem great. And I think it's actually the lack of commitment to any of these things is the way that keeps any of them from being great. Whereas on the Mac, it's it's really simple, right? It's like you've got Windows. Right. And what's fascinating about the Mac is, like, all the other stuff a launch pad and mission control and all like they're just adding stage manager to that too. But because at the end of the day, the Mac is still a bunch of overlapping windows. It doesn't feel as bonkers because you're not shifting these like modalities of how you work. Right. That's right. And I think
3: like to me, the way I've, I've come to think about it is it's like Apple, Apple is a big believer in like giving people rails on, on its iPad and iPhone software. Like, sort of helping you along in the process is a big part of what they want to do. And rather with the iPad, what they could have done is just like taken the rails off, right? And been like, you are you are free to do whatever weird nonsense you want to with your windows. But instead, they're like, here's eight sets of rails. You pick one. <laughs> and it's just like, like, would you like your train to go on 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 these rails, these rails, these rails, these rails, or these rails? And we're not going to tell you where any of them go. It's like, I don't, I don't know. Like what what am I supposed to do? And yeah, it's just I, I agree. If they would just pick one, it would by definition be better than having all of these different ones to choose from. And I almost don't care which one they pick.
4: It's wild because Apple's usually really good about that. Apple in fact is loves to put you on Rails. And in this one instance they're like, No, no Rails. Figure it out. You got this. I love like the confidence in me as a consumer, but stop. <laughs> That's not why I go Apple.
2: But again, I think most people are just opening one app at a time in these things. Yeah, going to the home screen and opening another app.
4: They'll accidentally open this and be startled and upset. Well,
2: you can't accidentally open it. Oh, you can't. Right. It is. It is
3: pretty buried in settings. It was. Yes! It was hard to find, which is, uh, I think, a really excellent design decision that Apple made. <laughs> but it's like think about when when Apple added that full screen mode button to the Mac. Like that was a recognition that like oh a lot of people just want to run one app at a time and they want to like do the weird keyboard swipey thing that nobody ever actually figures out on the trackpad to move between spaces. And maybe that's how you'll use your computer. And, uh, I don't know anyone who actually uses their computer like that, but if you do more power to you and now they're introducing stage manager as yet another way to be like, okay, you want to do a bunch of stuff, but you want it to be slightly more manageable. And even in that case, I'm like, okay, not what I want to do, but I sort of get it, but you're right. And it's like, that all exists as stuff on top of this like fundamentally customizable thing that does not exist on the iPad.
2: Right. Like you can install window managers on your Mac to make it do whatever you want. And that like that inherent acceptance of complexity allows you to do all the other things. I think going from simple and layering on things that make it more complex, just like make it fall down. I mean, Dieter always just talk about it, that the iPad is fundamentally organized by chronology and that Mac is fundamentally organized by like physical space. And, like, here, like, stage manager is just fighting with chronology. Like, the, it's a spatial metaphor of window management that is fighting between this was the last app you used. Who knows, man? Who knows? They're they're, they're just
3: going to sell a million iPads. Like The two monitor thing is delightful, by the way. That's another one where, like, developers have a lot of work to do to figure out. It's very funny. Like, you... You, inst- you put the monitor up and then like YouTube treats it like it's an AirPlay screen, which is fine. Other apps put their stuff up there and put it full screen. Netflix was just full sideways, just like a 90 degree <laughs> rotation <laughs> vertical video of Netflix. So it's like uh, in all of these cases, it could get a lot better if the developers play along. But like it's been a while since I can think of a time when developers had this much to do for like basic functionality on the iPad. It's going to be really interesting.
2: Or they'll just do nothing. Like it's weird that Apple's in that strange Microsoft zone where they're building capabilities that developers don't want to use because no one uses it. Like we'll see. We'll see if enough people demand that Netflix supports multiple monitors on the iPad.
3: Yeah, Uh, and I think you can get. I think Apple can get away with that on the iPhone in a way that it can't on the iPad. Like the iPhone is so ubiquitous that any hoop Apple asks developers to go through on the iPhone, it seems like they mostly will. Uh, Historically, the iPad. And you just build a full screen app and everything else is kind of gravy. I think you
4: can't even get an Instagram app. Like,
3: yeah,
2: I think Instagram at this point just loves not having an iPad app. Like it's like part of its identity now, for sure. It's part of the identity, but it's also the like get out of jail free card. Like the day that there's like Instagram accidentally leaks everyone's home phone number and steals $10 from you. They're like, but an iPad app.
3: Like <laughs> there's just a big button in Adam the garage that says launch the
2: iPad. App. <laughs> it's like in case of emergency, like total reputational wrestling hit the iPad app. All right. We are way over. We got to call out some things. One, it was accessibility week this week. We had a bunch of stories about accessibility in tech, some really, really good ones. Just a great package, something that we need to pay more attention to. Everybody needs to pay more attention to. And we have some great how to use, how to, how to do uh, accessibility features on Mac and windows, the over prevalence of animation, making things hard, like just a great package, um, including some stuff on Twitter bots that actually make the service more accessible, which is pretty good. Uh, so check that out. Uh, and then we can't have a Verge cast without mentioning dishes, project Gen five sis. um, who <laughs> it exists. We're going to make this a story. I, I don't hold me to this, but I think we're going to have,
3: Mitchell on, on next Wednesday to talk about his adventures in Gen five sis and Neel, I, I think you're probably going to have to be there for that.
2: I mean, I, where else could I possibly be? <laughs> we have, look, we are the only publication in America that has two different Project general 5 F5 CIS phones in two different <laughs> cities. I know this because when I was like, we should do it, the whole staff was like, why? So just extrapolating this out to other newsrooms, I'm guessing <laughs> that we're the only publication in America with two different Project general 5 F5 CIS phones in two different cities. But Mitchell has one. He's been running around with it. They've gamified feedback. So you get points if you tell them the network sucks, which is actually a great idea. Um, and then he traded in the points for an NFT. You got to read the story. You got to look at this NFT. The NFT is a picture of a dog. I don't know what else to say about it. It's like a cartoon dog wearing a 5g medallion. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's true. I, I have no notes
3: on the NFT. Like it's it's truly it's great. <laughs>
2: if you the, if you step up to the pro level NFT, the dog uh, gets a T-shirt that says "5G" in a nice. <laughs> and then the founder level, the dog is wearing 5G shades in a little. <laughs> in a I hadn't little seen derby the founder head. one before. The founder one is very good. It is unclear oh what the God. value of these NFTs are. In order to get the NFT. He had to download the entire blockchain, which is like <laughs> like seventy gigs of data. It's all very good. It's all it's all very very good. Um, seventy three gigs to download the entire Cardano blockchain <laughs> and verify it before we could add his Dish Network NFT. Project Geno Five says continues to be my just. It's a joy. It's all a ruse. It's just a r- I don't know what to tell you about it. Uh, it's very good. Uh, dish network has finally realized that we're the only publication with two phones on project. General five Sys. uh, so they've sort of speaking to us, um, which is good. So there's now some actual reporting in these stories as opposed to what was happening before, which was no one in that company, even acknowledging that they were running a wireless. <laughs> so we just had to wander the streets of America looking for five. <laughs> uh, by the way, the network still mostly doesn't exist. It's just AT&T. Uh, it's very good. I can, I can only imagine yeah. that the various CEOs of AT and T, T-Mobile, and Verizon are quaking at the sight of this dog.
4: 5 is coming, coming for, for him.
2: <laughs> um, it's very good. So read that, uh, please, please read it. Please, every time you see us cover 5 click on it. Get all your friends to click on it. Because after some amount of time, people are going to make me stop covering Project 5 <laughs> But I'm telling you, the idea that we we like created a fourth network out of smoke and mirrors to justify the T-Mobile buying Sprint is like one of the greatest heists in American history. It's incredible. It's just very good. And they're like, the way you do it is by like giving out NFTs of cartoon dogs is even better. So that's, uh, I can't, I can't get enough. Um we're going to have a decoder episode, by the way, on what um ORAN smart 5G cloud-based networks actually mean. And I'm not, I'm not going to give away too much, but. The last time I started ranting about it, we got to reach out from a very fancy person. He says, I can explain this to you. Richard so O'Ran. <laughs> himself. <laughs> yeah. Doctor Dr. O'Ran. Dr. O'Ran. O'Ran. It's going to be Dr. O'Ran and Judge Chancery. <laughs> it's going to be a wild episode of that show. All right. We are way, way over. You can tweet at us. Dan is at DC Seifert. Liz is at MS Lapato. Uh, Alex is Alex H. Kranz. David, of course, is at Pearson. I'm at Reckless. We love hearing from you. You can call the number. David, what's the number? 866-VERGE-111. No, that wasn't radio voice enough. Alex, what's the number? 866-VERGE-11. Liam, we gotta get a soundboard, man. Like a total, like (laughs) pew pew. Like we gotta do the whole thing. Just think about it.
0: Absolutely not.
2: All right. I'm gonna keep working on it. Tweet it, Liam. I don't know what his Twitter is. Liam, what's your Twitter? It's at Liam H. James. All right. Tell Liam that we need a soundboard with a pew pew sound. (laughs) Use those exact words. That's it. That's the Vergeast. We love you all. Rock and roll.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's show. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at com. And if you liked the show, share it with a friend. Vergecast is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by me, Liam James, and our senior audio director, Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. That's it. We'll see you next week.